scripture reading is 2 Corinthians 5, 13 to 18. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Can you grab Shay? Can you grab this chair? Ooh. Oh, good. Thank you. Thought I'd bring a perch. Please sit down. You'll have a perch, and I'll have a perch. Um, last week, um, Johnny mentioned that I was ill, sick, and I was sick. I ended up testing positive for COVID, my first time in two and a half years. Um, so I've had my five-day isolation, and now into the five-day of wearing a mask. So this morning, you have the opportunity of having a preacher with a mask on. So that is why I'm wearing my mask and just acknowledgement that COVID is still around and we have people in our community who are at risk and we have people who work in our community with people who are at risk. So it feels important um, to keep on trucking. So wearing my mask with intentionality is a way of caring um, for those in our community who are at risk and those who are in the community who work with people who are at risk. So um, although I would love for you to see my smiling face, you'll have to look into my smiling eyes instead this morning. Um, we're talking about um, resurrection, and we have been talking about resurrection since Easter, and what resurrection means for us. You know, I don't know if any of you work with wood or have worked with wood, but you plane in a certain direction. You plane according to the grain. Um, the grain of the wood. And with resurrection, we have this new life in Jesus, and it's like this new life with Jesus. It's this, Jesus kind of precipitates the grain of the universe going in a particular kind of way. And um, we go, when we go with Jesus, we go with the grain of the universe. And that grain is defined by love. Like that's the grain of the universe. But that's not always easy to go with the grain that is defined by love, right? I was talking to my friend this week, Virginia, and um, she has a five-year-old, and she said, yeah, she's not always motivated to act towards her five-year-old in love. Um, she doesn't always feel the empathy feels, and she doesn't always feel like she wants to be overly present. And so I said, well, what do you do in those moments? She's like, well, when I have the fortitude not to just lose it on him, she's like, I look at him. I just give myself a heart second and I look at him, like before I respond to him. I was like, oh, that's a really good way of kind of giving yourself pause to get realigned. So like, okay, what's, 
the grain of the universe this, in this moment with my five-year-old. And it takes sometimes a moment of thoughtfulness, of stopping and pausing to go with the grain of the universe as defined by love and to look and see people. It's part of that. And so I'm going to pray and then we're going to look at our text together today. Jesus, thanks for um, just the fact that today we get to be with each other and we get to look at each other. And I pray that that wouldn't be lost on us, that there is something to see today in our being together. There's something to see with you in our being with you. And so would you give us eyes to see through lenses of love so that our actions and our words and our presencing can be done with your grain that is the grain of love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, Jane Ann read for us from um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. She's going to read for us again from verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Here we're told we're compelled by Christ's love, which is a self-sacrificial love, as communicated to us from verses 13 to 15. And as we hold on to that love, the love that is demonstrated to us and given to all, which is what it says in verse 15, we, what does it tell us to do? We see no one as compelled by that love, holding that love, demonstrating that love. Because of that love, we no longer regard people from a worldly point of view, it says. I like this, this is the NIV translation. I like the CBS translation a bit better because it feels a bit more clear. It says, we no longer recognize people by human standards. And so what is being communicated here is that Paul is talking about the way that we evaluate each other, the way that we see each other. And he says we don't do that any longer by human standards because of this love that we have gotten a hold of. And I think it's important to be mindful of that because oftentimes the way the standards that we use to evaluate each other determines our treatment of each other, our attitude towards each other, the way that we are with each other. And so it's important for us to be mindful of what we are using to evaluate each other. I also want to say that it's really important that it says no one. We evaluate no one from human standards. So that no also includes ourselves. We don't evaluate others from human standards, but we are included in that. So we also do not value, evaluate ourselves 
using those standards. And oftentimes our treatment or our sense of ourselves is correlated to how we treat others. So the contempt that we hold for ourselves, the self-criticism, the disgust, the judgment, even the pride or the expectations that we hold for ourselves, we often project onto others. And we hold others to the standards that we hold ourselves to. And that's a symbiotic tendency. The relationship between how I see myself and how I tend to see you. And that's not always bad, but it's something to be aware of. Especially when our internal dialogue merges with social and human standards. And so then we have to ask ourselves, well, what are those social and human standards that we're like swimming about in? There are lots of them. And there are lots of them around us that we use or have been told to us that we need to use to determine value. Our education levels, right? The money that we have. We use it to evaluate each other for good or bad. The power that we have or the vocation that we occupy the family that we're a part of, our race or ethnicity, the bodies that we live in, how we look, we use to evaluate each other, our conflicts, old conflicts, new conflicts, histories of conflicts, all of these things are, we swim about in and we adopt them as value systems that we use against ourselves and we use against others. Or we use in favor of ourselves or we use in favor of others. And they all kind of produce a story in us or data that we use to evaluate. And this information becomes a lens through which as Paul says, we regard one another. We see each other. So we see people this way or that way. And sometimes it begins to become predictable in what we are going to see or what we are going to think about what we see and then our behaviors and words that come from the way that we're seeing and it's all based on the lenses that we've adopted or that we've inherited so we have to ask ourselves and Paul is asking us to do so through do so with this task, we have to ask ourselves, what does it look like to have the lens of love? How do we begin to learn to regard ourselves and others through the lens of love? 
Because like I said, it is easy to become predictable. We, it's sometimes completely unconscious. We don't even know that we're regarding certain people in certain ways. As much as we wish we weren't, or we don't want to admit it, we are. We become predictable. I was listening to an online lecture, and um, the gentleman was talking about belonging and peace, and I loved what he said. He said, there is a moment of courage when you might go, everything in me wants to respond in a predictable way. However, I'm going to try to respond in a way that's surprising. Love it. Love it. What a good idea. I am going to try to respond in a way that is surprising. Leading up to Easter, we looked at Jesus' interactions with people, and I want to remember back to a few of those because I think they might remind us and help us. Because Jesus is very surprising in his interactions with people. Um, one of the stories that we looked at was from John 4. Jesus is going through the area of Samaria with his disciples. And the Jewish people at that time didn't like um, Samaritans because of religious, relational, and ethnic differences and conflict. Um, and that was happening in that time because of Assyria had come in, taken over that area, and kind of conglomerated it. And there was a sense that there was some differences that were happening that were causing conflict. Very not unlike certain things that happen today very normal for those kinds of conflicts to begin to happen. So Jesus is, finds himself in the middle of this conflict that is happening, this religious and cultural and ideological um, ethnic, these differences. And he's at a well and there's a Samaritan woman there and he begins to talk to her, which is surprising to this woman for multiple reasons. And she says to him, oh, you're, you're a Jewish man and you're talking to a Samaritan woman. She's just clarifying, this is odd. And then when the disciples come back, it says in the text that they're shocked. And they're shocked, one, because she's Samaritan, and they're all very aware of the conflicts that are going on, but they're secondarily shocked because he is a religious leader, a religious man. He is also a man, and he is talking to a woman. And that's what it says they're shocked by. Jesus is running solo and he is talking solo to a woman who is solo and that is not the order of the day. Jesus' actions are surprising. And all these valuations, historical, cultural, political, gendered, they are packed into this moment and they should prevent Jesus from being curious about this woman. But instead, what he does is surprising. He looks at her. He sees her. He is curious about her. And we know that because when she goes back to her village, she says that. She says that she is entirely known by this Jewish man. Jesus steps out of the predictable and he acts in a surprising way. He sees. 
Does the same thing, remember another story with the, with the woman caught in adultery? Can anybody remember that story? Yeah, this religious people pull her into a crowd. Say that she's committed adultery and then tell Jesus, like, what are you going to do about it? They are using her to catch him out. And there are all kinds of dynamics at play. Rome. They have a different law than the law that is written there. And so he, there's this moment of conflict. He could get himself into trouble with Rome. But he could also be disrespectful of Yahweh. And then he's also being asked, put in this position with this woman, this huge power play where she's already being humiliated because the man that she was with isn't there. And there's a crowd, which again could make it extra volatile. Ooh, what does Jesus do? Surprisey, surprisey. He doesn't use any of those valuations in this situation. He isn't afraid of Rome. He's not obligated to religious norms. And nor does he humiliate for his own sake. He asks a question. And they see him in that question. And they see her in that question. And they see themselves in that question. They're given different lenses. And nobody is condemned. Jesus is surprising. One more story that we looked at during Easter, the Roman centurion. Anybody remembering it? Yeah. Jesus and the people that are with him, they're subjugated by Rome. They're subjugated members. They're, and there are people within his community that are enraged by this, that Rome has taken over this territory. Johnny, when he talked about this, said it's similar to the Donbass region. It is in, it's intense. And here he comes, this person of power, military man. And you know that there's people in that scenario that are completely activated by this. This man is coming into our midst. But he comes for help and he asks Jesus for help. So Jesus gets up to go and help him and the man's like, oh, you don't have to come with me. Just say the word and the thing that I've asked for will, be happen, will happen. And then Jesus says something, again, so surprising. I have not found anyone in all of Israel with this kind of faith. What did you just say, Jesus? You heard me. I have not found anyone in all of Israel with this kind of faith. Say, say, say again. This man is not the likely candidate for having more faith than all the people of faith. Jesus' words are surprising. There's a moment of courage when you might go, 
Everything in me wants to respond in a predictable way. However, I'm going to try to respond in a way that's surprising. And to do that requires a level of creativity. It requires some curiosity. And I don't know about you, but I don't always show up curious. There are some people that I am not looking to be surprised by. And I think that's valid. There's a, not a lot of past information that gives me reason to believe that I could be surprised by this person or by this group of people. And so I think it's okay that I walk into certain circumstances not expecting to be surprised. I've got good reason for it. So what do I do then? Last week, Johnny talked about enemies. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is the path from enemy to friend? No, not yet, sorry. I'm <laughs> jumping ahead, I have a little. What is the path from enemy to friend? And the passage that we read goes on uses the word reconciliation. It says that God views us through the eyes of love, that he doesn't count our sins against us, and then he asks us to do the same thing. And the word here that is all the way through the passage is the word reconciliation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this, is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I like the way that it's written in the message. All this comes from God, all this love, all this generosity, all this goodness comes from God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. Whoa. That's hard. God reaches to us in Jesus and then asks us to reach to each other and he calls that whole thing the ministry of reconciliation. I haven't really, um, I'm a bit too old for having read Harry Potter. I shouldn't say that because my mum's actually read all of Harry Potter. So it's not that I'm too old. I don't know why I haven't. I just haven't. But when you're about people that are aware of Harry Potter, you just pick up on little gems, you know? I did have to Google a little, I'm not going to lie. Um, but I was like, oh, Ministry of Reconciliation. And then I was thinking about the Ministry of Magic, right? It's the government of magic in the books that are Harry Potter. And um, then you have the dark arts, right? The dark arts are what harm, they control, 
they kill. It corrupts those who use them. And then what works against the dark art? Regular magic, come to find out. Just regular all magic is what works against the dark arts. I think that's what the Ministry of Reconciliation is. It's just regular magic. Regular, ordinary, everyday magic that works against the dark arts. It's the road or the path between enemy and friend. And it is not a direct route, right? It's the way we begin to hope to see each other and God in surprising ways. It's the way to begin to adopt lenses of love. And it's usually, like I said, not a direct route or route. I can't remember what the word is anymore. Is it route or route? Whichever one you want. Oh, friends, everything's all right. To direct, it's not direct. And so I want us to talk a little bit about what are, what's the ordinary magic of reconciliation? What are the practices of reconciliation along this wobbly line? I think honesty belongs along this wobbly line. I think justice and healing belong along this wobbly line. I think advocacy belongs along this wobbly line. I think lament and anger and repair and space all belong along this wobbly line. I think standing up and exposing wrongdoing belongs along this wobbly line. Changing. I have been wrong until now. I will change. It belongs along this wobbly line. What else belongs along this wobbly line? This is an interactive moment. Anything you think of that I haven't said, what belongs along this wobbly line? Grief Grief belongs along this wobbly line. What else? Forgiveness Forgiveness belongs along this wobbly line. What else? Acceptance. Acceptance. Anxiety. Anxiety, yes. It belongs along this wobbly line. What else? Disappointment belongs along this wobbly line. Joy. Joy. Hope. Surrender. Fear. Fear belongs along this wobbly line. Compassion. Compassion belongs along this wobbly line. So many things belong on the path between enemy and friend. We could probably go on. Thank you. Padraig Otuma um, led and is still a part of a reconciliation ministry in Ireland He works in schools, he works in universities, he works with individuals, he works with government. 
There's another person I often talk about here too with Gregory Boyle. He works in LA among gang members. And the reason that I reference these people a lot is because they are very clearly along this path and encouraging us along this path. And when Padraig talks about reconciliation, he talks about it as a complicated art, which I love because art can be messy. It's not a direct route from one place to the other. And he talks about reconciliation more as truthing and reconciling processes, right? More than one over a long period of time. Conflict theory says that it takes as long to de-escalate a situation as it does to es as it has to escalate it. And he works in what's called, or did work, and is still part of something that is called the Ministry of Reconciliation. This is what he says, the Ministry of Reconciliation can sometimes be seen through a suspicious light because to acknowledge the need for reconciliation is to acknowledge a problem. Reconciliation can seem like a soft word, but for others, reconciliation, why? What needs to be reconciled? Am I a threat? Patrick is Irish and I'm English. And that will mean something to some of you and it will mean nothing to others of you. And that's okay because we're not all part of the same conflicts. There's a history here. A history of conflict over centuries. But most recently, there was a border drawn in 1921. And there was a period where people were trying to make sense of that line being drawn in Ireland. And then in the 1960s, 1968 and 1969, there were civil rights marches because of institutional discrimination in Ireland. And after those civil rights marches, there became what was known as the 30 years defined by the word troubles. I don't know if you've heard of them. The Irish refer to it as the troubles. Thousands died. 80,000 people were injured. Over 500,000 people grieving. And that's not in a population that's quite at 1.5 million. So you can imagine the vast reach of this conflict. In 1998, when I was 20, so I was aware of these conflicts because they started 10 years before I was born, but then we're 20 years into my life, so very aware of the conflicts, of the troubles. In 1998, the Belfast or the Good Friday Agreement was signed, and the Crown, England, no longer holds sovereignty over Northern Ireland and it was put back into the hands of the people. It is written into that agreement. In 
But then we have Brexit. And there's no forethought by the British government given to the Irish people. And that line that was drawn in 1921 and this new vote has implications for that population of people, but there was no forethought given. is a conflict that I'm in because I'm English. It's one that I still belong to. And there's conflicts now that I belong to because I'm also American. My mother is from the South and I live here. Conflicts like what to do about guns when 19 children and two teachers die again. And now there's a conflict about what to do about guns. There's conflict about race and systemic racism. There is conflict about police and a pandemic. And there's all kinds of them. There's conflict about covering up abuses. The Southern Baptist Church for 20 years have covered up abuses just come to light this past week. And there are people, in terms of reconciliation with God, I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago, and he's like, yeah, God and I started out like this. And it has taken us some time to get here. You can imagine, if you are one of those people that ex experienced abuse at the hands of church leaders, that you are going to need some time to understand and make sense of God. And those are just like the large ones, you know? We've got, we've got conflict between each other in our families and our workplaces, and then we have conflicts that we live in within ourselves. And that's why these Jesus stories are so important, because they help us to understand the path from enemy to friend. Jesus is incarnational. Jesus has an embodied response to things that are abstract. We need embodied responses to things that are abstract. Human dynamics and human relations are really important in transforming division. Right? The human encounter is the glue It's what's needed in relations. Relations between people. It's needed at an individual level. It's needed at community level. Human interactions are what inform communities. Human interactions are what inform things at the governmental level. At policy, education and even the executive level. We cannot live in the world of abstractions. We have to get things embodied. And human relations are part of that embodiment. Which is why those stories of Jesus are so important. And why I think what Meg is doing is so important. We can talk about neurodiversity in the abstract, 
But that doesn't mean families. And people who experience neurodiversity feel welcomed or included or as though they belong. No. We need sensory kits so that people can walk in and know that they have capacity to have support to stay to belong. We need communities that are informed about neurodiversity so that folks can know to experience goodness in an exchange instead of uncertainty or hostility or marginalization. And so I think the thing that Meg illustrated today is an embodied response to something that can sometimes feel so abstract to some of us, but is so real and embodied to others. It's beautiful. And what would we call it? Regular magic. That, my friends, is regular magic. It is the ministry of reconciliation. It is bringing us back together again. It's easy to lose hope. But we need the ministry of reconciliation. It's what the world needs now, most especially, that we would begin and continue to put on our lenses of love through all the different ways that we named, moving ourselves from enemies to friends. There exists a moment of courage. And it's the moment when you might go, everything in me wants to respond in a predictable way. What are the ways that you act predictably towards somebody who is an other in your life? Where are you predictable? And maybe you don't know. If somebody else is telling you that you are acting predictably, you should listen to them. Even if you don't agree with them, maybe your first step today is like, oh, I am being told that I am acting predictably. Let me pay attention. That could be your one little step on the windy road of reconciliation. There exists a moment of courage when you might go, everything in me wants to act predictably. However, I am going to try to respond in a way that's surprising. We need help to do that. So I'm going to ask you to stand. Padraig wrote a prayer of courage prayer for courage and it's been read by this community of people in Ireland and so we read it with them we read this prayer with the English and the Irish and there's a word in there that's Irish and we're going to read it in Irish because that language was nearly obliterated 
So we're not, I'm not removing that word. We're going to learn a bit of Irish. And it's the word cray. Can you see it? Say it together. Cray. It means heart in the Irish language. And so we're going to pray with people who have prayed for courage for a long time. Because they need courage. Because of their grief and their pain. And we need courage. Because of our grief and our pain. And we need courage to act in surprising ways in moments like this. Because we need this ordinary magic to work against the dark arts. So let's pray for courage. Together we'll say, courage comes from the heart and we are always welcomed by God, the cray of all being. We bear witness to our faith, knowing that we are called to live lives of courage, love and reconciliation in the ordinary and extraordinary moments of each day. We bear witness too to our failures and our complicity in the fractures of our world. May we be courageous today. May we learn today. May we love today. Amen.